Well, in the month of October, we like to celebrate the uh, Protestant Reformation, and uh, that picture up on the screen there is actually a uh, depiction, a drawing of what uh, the assembly uh, looked like when they would meet and talk uh, and discuss and debate over doctrine as they, uh, as they were working out. The, uh, the Westminster Assembly uh, was called um, by Parliament to revise the 39 Articles, which was the Confession of Faith of the Church of England or the Anglican Church. And as they did so, they determined that they were going to have to uh, basically start over from scratch. And, uh, and they did so. And, uh, and, it, and they met over a period of roughly eight years um, and met a lot. Uh, in the middle of it, there was a civil war <laughs> uh, going on. And it's quite an, it's an immense, uh, it's immensely interesting uh, period to, to study and to read. And our officers right now are, um, and our officer nominees are all reading through the Westminster Larger uh, Catechism and Shorter Catechism and the Westminster Confession of Faith, these documents that came out of that time period uh, and um, amazingly don't reflect a hint of the Civil War that was happening at the time. Uh, but uh, the pr we want to broaden it out and then we'll narrow it back in, in just a second, but we the Protestant Reformation, going back to Martin Luther and even some of the early lights that came before him that, that, were, that preceded Luther, uh, but the Protestant Reformation um, was, was essentially a, a recentering of the Christian faith and life on Jesus Christ in the gospel. That's what it was. That's what the Reformation was. And uh, one of the tools that were used the, uh, by the reformers, not exclusively by the reformers, but one of the tools the reformers used was an ancient tool uh, called catechism, which is a question and answer method of instruction, which the technical term for that is catechesis. And um, if you want to sound fancy, you can say catechetical, but then you're just being annoying. So, uh, so, we, so we have a shorter catechism and we have a lar larger, longer catechism called, shockingly, the larger catechism. And so this month, as we were thinking about the Reformation, thinking about reform doctrine, and the fact that our, officer and our officers and our officer nominees are actually reading through these documents, I thought it would be good for us to uh, meditate on some select questions from the larger catechism. And there's no better place to start than with number one, and, uh, and so the larger catechism, like the shorter, uh, it starts with this, uh, this question. What is the chief and highest end of man? What is the chief and highest end of man? This is a question that every person asks in different ways. Why am I here? What is the purpose of my life? What am I supposed to be doing in life? What is my direction in life? And so we're asking this question, what is the purpose of mankind? What is the purpose of man? What is the purpose of my life? What is the chief and highest end to which I am called and that I am to go towards? But as we're asking that question and we realize, well, we're talking about faith, we're talking about Christianity, we're talking about religion. And so we, we wonder, you know, why start with us? Why do we start with us here? Why does the catechism, uh, why do both catechisms start with a question about us? 
That's not how the large, that's not how the confession starts. The question starts with a chapter on scripture. And even that is a question, why did they start there? Why don't we talk about the scriptures, though? Why don't we have a question about God? Well, essentially, this is how we experience reality, right? Shockingly enough, as we grow up and we were born and we grow up as children and stuff, we become aware of ourselves, first of all, and how we think about things. Uh, if you go on to read the Westminster Larger Catechism, you're going to find that after uh, question one, it starts with the chief end of man, it's going to move very quickly over to questions about the scriptures and about God. Uh, but, uh, but it starts here because, as John Calvin wrote centuries ago, the understanding of God and the understanding about ourselves are mutually interconnected things. As I become more and more aware of myself, my humanity, my capabilities and capacities, I naturally tend to move towards the transcendent. I start thinking about God and understanding him. As I think more about God and I learn about God, I will start very naturally talk about, think about how does that relate to me? What does that say about me? How does that interact with me? And so uh, Calvin actually said uh, that the, the knowledge of God and ourselves is so intertwined together in the human experience, it's hard to know which one precedes the other, which one you know, uh, which, which one gives birth to the other. He doesn't know which one's the chicken, which one's the egg, which one came first. He can't, you can't really say. Also, this is one of the most, if not the most asked questions of human beings generally. Other than questions about where do we come from, how do we know what's right and wrong, and what happens to me when I die, there are aisles of books in the bookstore, endless pages to scroll through on Amazon of, of authors with books promising to help you find your life's purpose. In fact, one of the most famous Christian books uh, that, that, uh, that sold is uh, called The Purpose Driven Life. It's not a book I actually recommend. If you need to know why, I'll tell you later. But you can ask me later. But um, uh, but the point is, is everyone thinks about purpose, not just Christians. Everyone does. But there's a the, but the question has become twisted over time in in such in such a way that uh, I'm gonna put it in this very specific way, saying that we've we've become so obsessed with purpose that we've actually uh, moved to where we've burdened ourselves with what we could call self-determination. The problem actually goes of self-determination goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden where God told Adam and Eve who they were and what their life was and set the boundaries of their authority. God set one tree apart in the garden as the symbol of his authority to determine morality, good and evil. He said that all the other trees are yours. This one's mine. It doesn't look different than the other trees. It's not, it doesn't look special. I didn't put like gold fruit on it or something. But this is my tree. And you don't get to eat from it. But Adam and Eve, of course, rebelled. They determined that they were going to be the ones who determined what, right from wrong. They didn't want God to be the, the center of their life. They wanted to be at the center. And humanity has taken that idea and run with it. And more and more we have bought into this idea that a genuine, authentic life that will lead me to happiness and personal fulfillment 
must be and can only be defined by me. I have to look deep down inside myself and figure out somehow, suss it out from something in me, why I exist, what my purpose is, and more recently, uh, what my sexual orientation is or what my gender is. We treat ourselves and others like we're these pre-wrapped mystery boxes. And who doesn't love an unboxing party? I'm just, I just got all these bunch of surprises in me, and I don't even know what they are. Why has this happened? Well, it's a long, complicated story, but basically we have coupled the pride of the fall with the fact that we have so many options in life today. There was a time when the purpose of one's life was very clear because there wasn't any ability to move or change occupations to, you couldn't leave. You couldn't get a different job. That was it. You, couldn't, you didn't have time to go about wondering about who you were because the, if you didn't get the work done, you die. Right? People were depending on you. Now, I'm not advocating that we necessarily go back to that. All right? You've got to lose the medical adva- advancements, the, the technology advancements. There's no Nutella available. Like, it's just terrible. All right, there's all kinds of bad things. What, um, but what we have done is we have interpreted the fact that we have so many options available to us to pick and choose from that everything, even the very fundamentals of my existence, must be up for the picking and the choosing. We've overinterpreted options and applied it to everything, even the very fundamentals of our identity. Now, as we, as we delve into the answer to this question of what is the chief and highest end of man? What is the purpose of man? What is the purpose of my life? We need to make, make sure that we, we need to narrow this a bit, make sure we're very clear that we're only considering our chief and highest purpose. We're only considering our chief and highest purpose. Chief meaning primary or foremost. Highest meaning our grandest, greatest, biggest purpose. And the reason I say that is because in life, there are many lesser, supporting, subordinate, or you could say secondary or third-level tertiary purposes. You know, under, under under the chief end of man, you could also put our roles as, you know, as defined by our roles as a member, a member of a family or a member of the church or a, or a citizen of a country. Those are different roles and responsibilities that have sub, the, the, their own purposes to them. But what we're doing is we're going all the way to the top. And we're considering the chief and highest end or purpose that informs them all. That's what we're doing here. And so, uh, and so what is the answer to the question? What is man's chief and highest end? Well, the answer is man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. Now, I, I have glorify God underlined here because uh, as simple as it may sound, we only have time today to tackle the first part of the answer, which is to glorify God. Next week, we're going to talk about what it means to fully enjoy God forever and how this actually dovetails 
with glorifying God. Because they uh, glorifying God and, and 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 joy, you know, some some people treat them like they're oil and water when they don't realize they're actually peanut butter and jelly. All right, they're delicious and they go together. Okay, so now we're all just hungry. Sorry. All right, okay. Now, um, and so and so we're gonna we'll just focus on glorifying God today, and and so we need to see that the primary and greatest purpose of our lives is to glorify God. The primary and greatest purpose of your life and mine is to glorify God. We're going to talk about why, and then we're going to talk about how. So first, why? Why is it that the greatest and grandest purpose? Why is that it? Well, because God is worthy of his glory. The glory that we are called to give him. Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. By your will they existed and were created. In the throne vision in the book of Revelation, John reveals the praise of, of the heavenly beings ascribing worthiness to God to receive all glory. And what reasons do they give? Well, first, God created all there is. Now, if you turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, he he expressly highlights how this works through the Word, uh, and the Word made flesh, which is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, but highlighting that there is nothing there, nothing that exists that was not created through the word. That is, there is nothing that exists in creation that God did not make, that somehow just showed up out of the void, that God did not plan, allow, or permit. Further, it says he made things, all these things by his will. The existence and creation of this universe, this world, this building, the existence of you and I right now is due to God, his will, and his word. Further, we need to see that because of this, our existence is actually a gift of his goodness. That God existed apart from creation, before creation, it means that creation itself is not necessary. God did not have to make anything. He did not have to make you or me. But he did. Now, it doesn't seem very complimentary for the pastor to come here and tell you, you are unnecessary. (laughs) But we're not. But what this means is not that we don't have value. What it means is that creation itself, that you and I and our existence is actually a gift from God that testifies to his goodness. He made you because he wanted to make you. Not because he had to. Nobody forced his hand.
Not only this, but God bestowed upon humanity, upon you and I, the greatest honor. We are made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. We have the distinct privilege of being living reflections of the living God. And even more, not only did he make us, not only did he bestow upon us his very image that we would be living representations of him upon creation, but he has also redeemed us at the inestimable cost of his blessed son Jesus, who came to give us righteousness and forgiveness and an eternal inheritance by his death, his life, and his resurrection. All of this and more is why the Apostle Paul, after having spent ten chapters going through the wickedness and fallenness of man, the, wonder, the, 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 uh, the wondrous nature of the gospel uh, and, and, um, and God's goodness uh, to his people and sealing his, his redemptive work unto us, unto glory. As he goes all the way through that, he finally says in Romans eleven thirty six, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. All things are from him. Now, we would say there are some exceptions to this. Uh, evil and sin do not proceed from God directly. They proceed from the creature, the fallen creature. But all things come by his will, wherein he even overpowers evil. He superintends it to make it work for his glory, and yes, even for the good, the ultimate good of his people. All things in time and space, the scriptures testify again and again, all things in time and space testify to the power, existence, and wonder of God. So why ought we to glorify God why ought this to be the supreme goal of our lives? Simply put, because God deserves it. And there are times where we see people get more than they deserve, and we are irate. There are times where people's, people um, don't get what they do deserve, and we are irate. Whether it's reward or punishment, they don't get what they deserve, and we're, and we're upset about it. God is the highest, most glorious, most supreme being ever. There's no one to even compare him to. He is literally incomparable. Do we view his glory like that? Do we view that? Do we, do we, and that's what they call zeal in the Bible. To be zealous for the glory of God. For him simply to receive that which he is due. He is greater than we can possibly conceive, who has done a work of redemption we can barely comprehend, who has secured for us eternal life in his eternal kingdom, which is a future so wonderful and amazing we cannot understand it. He is worthy. 
And so he's worthy of our life's end. That our life's purpose, glory, is, is the glory of God. That is it. He is worthy of it. But let us consider then for a moment how we might actually go about glorifying this God. First, we need to ask ourselves, what does it mean to glorify God? It's one of those basic words that you get asked. You're like, what is glory? What does it mean to glorify? And, uh, and so it's helpful to have a definition for it. But essentially, we glorify God as his creatures, as humanity, as redeemed, his redeemed ones, by calling attention to his perfections. And we do so by both our words and our life. Now, we want to be clear. Glorifying God is not giving to God anything that he does not already have. God is not a needy person searching for praise and fishing for compliments because he's insecure. He doesn't need our praise as though he was missing something if we withhold it. And I just, you know, just as an example of this, think of, think of you know, your favorite singer, okay? Your favorite music artist, whatever they may be. Are they, is that singer qualitatively a better singer because you told your friend how great they are? Does that improve the singer's ability or talent? No, it doesn't. Does it, do, does it at least in your estimation, does it ascribe to them the praise that they are due for their talent and their skill? Yes. But it doesn't make them better singers. It doesn't add to them. Even more with the God who is perfection itself. And so what we're, what we're about to look at and consider here is both general, but it's also immensely practical. It has to be general because, uh, well, you'll see why it has to be general, because you can't get overly specific with what it means to glorify God. We And, and so... And we say, because the scriptures say, that we glorify God. Well, how do we do that? Well, uh, well, we don't just say, well, I'm going to go glorify God today. How? I'm just going to go glorify him. Like, what, what does that mean? Well, actually, the scriptures tell us what it means to glorify God. And so 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verses 19 through 20 says, uh, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit uh, within you, uh, whom you have from God? Now, this, the second, this, now, no, the second part here. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And so we belong to God because he made us. Even more, he made us in his image. But God has also done this special work that calls forth our praise in that he has redeemed us in his blessed son, Jesus. And, and, and now it is an offensive and almost terrifying prospect to many a modern mind to be told that we do not belong to ourselves. That's one of the fundamental sacrosanct rules of secular orthodoxy. I am in charge of myself. I belong to me. My truth is my truth. Like that kind of thing. But the scriptures clarify that we are not, in fact, captains of our own souls, piloting, piloting our own little galaxy spaceships through space. I don't, people get weird with their metaphors in this thing. 
That's delusion. The reality is that we are limited beings born into particular circumstances that we have to live within, and there is one who is greater than we are. But notice that, that he says that to glorify God, he says not by, you know, just uh, um, listening to Caleb forever or, or just singing hymns all the time. Like, that's part of glorifying God is, is expressing through praise. Okay? But he says glorify God with your body. Do something spiritual with the physical. He doesn't say with minds, hearts, souls. All those would those certainly would apply. Jesus tells us to you know to to uh, to honor the Lord with everything that we have, right? Heart, mind, body, soul, strength. He's, it says that look, the practical aspects of our lives, uh, the physical, matters along with the spiritual. This is because our creation, our salvation, are a complete package. Just as we are both physical and spiritual beings, and so we glorify God with our bodies and how we act and how we live and how we speak. I mean, you read First Timothy chapter 4 where he talks about giving thanks unto God and enjoying the food and the things that God gives as gifts from above. We honor, uh, we, uh, and that's why, it's one of the reasons why, you know, we talk, we, you know, this, uh, the New Testament spends a lot of time talking about like a fleeing from sexual immorality and these things. Why? Because the physical matters. It interplays with the spiritual because they're related because we are whole beings. We're not merely, we're not just physical, the physical animals that, that the secular world wants us to be. Neither are we just kind of like these, some kind of like, you know, some kind of uh, an, an illusion of physicality, but we're really actually spiritual beings uh, primarily. We are both spiritual and physical. And so we glorify God very practically with our bodies and, uh, and, 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 and another way to, that Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians, same letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, is he says that we glorify God with our lives. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever covers pretty much everything. That means when we eat, or we drink, we do so to the glory of God. When we go do our yard work, we do so to the glory of God. When we go to our labors, we do so to the glory of God. When we go on vacation, we do so uh, to the glory of God. Everything is done to the glory of God. I've been listening to his le theology lectures from Sinclair Ferguson on the, on the Westminster Confession. And one of the things he points out in the, uh, about, uh, on the, as he uh, comments on the chapter on good works in the Westminster Confession, as he, he says, look, you know, um, you can't say, well, you go do your good works. I'm going to go glorify God. We glorify God by our good works. We glorify God by our obedience. We glorify God by the ways that we live our lives. We call attention to our God directly and indirectly. Glorifying God is such a practical thing. The New Testament tells us we can do it at every meal, with every sip of coffee, in our work, our vacations, our relationships. It means there is a transcendent reality to our lives such that nothing we do is, is totally insignificant. And everything we do is done with an eye to calling forth the praise of God for his goodness, 
and his grace. And what we're doing, if you step back and realize the, the, the grander picture, is, is, and it speaks to both why and how we glorify God, which is that to glorify God is simply to participate in the direction of all creation. It's just to swim in the stream of history because that's where it's going. The glory of God and his mercy and his justice, that is where all history, the flow of creation, is going. And to glorify God is simply just to swim along in the current. We actually just looked at this psalm last Sunday night, uh, so it's interesting. This is actually a proof text that the Westminster Larger Catechism uses to explain uh, what it means here by glorifying God. David, the psalmist uh, in the psalm, he writes, All nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name. David, almost before it was written, David is summarizing Paul. That all these, these verses that we've talked about. The direction of the history of the world is the glory of God for his wondrous works and his exclusive supremacy over everything. But the direction of glory narrows even in on the individual as David describes the man or woman of God with a committed heart of overflowing praise. I will glorify your name forever. To glorify God is to make the direction of our life intentionally to align with the direction, ultimately, of history itself, the providence of God, which is bringing glory to God in his goodness his mercy, and his justice. And this is a wonderful thing because it frees us from the intolerable burden of defining our own existence. Now, there's a natural pushback to that because people hear that and be like, what, are you, oh, so you, Mr. Man, you're going to define it for me? You're going to define my life existence? Let me guess, it's give you money, right? It's like, <laughs> you know, that's, that's right. No, I don't, I'm not defining it for people. The Lord defines it for us. The word of God defines it for us, defines it for me. But I want you to consider some of the common answers that I've heard when you ask somebody. If you go ask somebody, and I guarantee you've heard at least some or all of these. Um, when you ask somebody, what's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? Why do we exist? You're, you're going to get, there's, I'm sure this is, not, this is not an exhaustive list, but here's four of the most common answers. I've personally heard these, okay? Some argue, well, it's just to be a good person. The most general answer that you could ever give, right? But you hear it a lot. Well, you just the meaning of life, the purpose of life, just just be a good person. Okay. Well, then we, you know, but by what standard do we measure goodness? Do we measure goodness, right? How do we know what when a person is good? Because there are people who have wildly different standards, right? A lot of good people in prison. Some argue that uh, well, the the meaning of life is to improve our world. You know, to, to make it a better place than when you left it. Yeah, there you go. Well, that's a nice sentiment, but to be sure. But what compels me to do that apart from God and the calling that he's placed upon my life? 
Where is the oughtness? Yeah, I could do that, but why not make the world a worse place than when I got here? Why not just use it all up and, you know, it just, I'm going to make sure the last check I write bounces. You know, I'm going to spend it all on me, right? Why not do that? How is that morally better? How is that qualitatively better or worse? How do you determine that? Some argue that we need to pursue our own version of happiness as long as it, of course, they always throw this in there, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. It's like, okay, well, how do you define happiness and hurt? Because those are two big, questions, two big definitions you need to have. Also, is seeking pleasure in life really the ultimate end of our existence? Um, you know, and, and then and the fourth uh, answer that I've heard a lot is, uh, you know, some argue just go, well, you know, the purpose of life is just to, to learn and grow as a person as much as you can before, you know, you die. I've heard that a lot. And again, nice sentiment, but why? Why? That's a lot of work. Learning's hard. What if I just want to be a, a, a blissful ignoramus and just float along upon a, just an endless deluge of YouTube and Netflix until I just waste away after, you know, my final DoorDash meal takes me down? The Achilles heel of all of these positions and, and, and others, even I didn't mention, is that they terminate in glorifying the creation, glorifying man or the world rather than its creator. One of the problems with defining ourselves and, and self, being self-deterministic is that depending on our perspective, we will always either exalt humanity far too high or we will devalue humanity, even our own. Some will live as though their purpose is to fulfill their grand destiny, to have everyone bowing at their feet and serving them. Others will conclude that they are not worthy to live, that life is worthless, and that they don't deserve to live anymore. But our calling to glorify God cuts through both of those false ideas. We are humbled in our calling to glorify God because our purpose is not made by us, nor is it ultimately about us. But we are exalted and affirmed in our dignity because our calling to glorify God is the highest and most noble calling there is to call attention to the marvelous goodness of our God in his creation and his redemption. There's no greater calling than that. There are, and, and even to boot, there are almost limitless ways to go about doing it. Because God has placed us in different circumstances given us vastly different giftings and capacities. And so we glorify God in unique ways. And it's a calling that extends to everyone, all of God's children, to the strong and to the weak, to the rich and the poor. The, the, it, 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 it's, a, it's a calling that challenges even the most naturally gifted among us and brings joy to even those who face tremendous challenges in their lives. Or it feels like these obstacles that are, that are handcuffing them and not, let, not letting them, you know, go do this or that thing. You know, other thing, why? Because I'm, 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 you know, my loved one is deeply ill and I just have to care for them and I can't do these other things. You can still bring glory to God in how you care for your spouse or your child. You bring glory to God in so many ways. And this is so foundational for us. I remember when I was in college, I read a book 
And it was something between, it was either the holiness of God or desiring God. I read them both in the same year, so, so my memory's a little fuzzy on exactly uh, when. But, and it was before I was Reformed, before I was Presbyterian, any of that, and I was introduced to this catechism question. What is the chief end of man? And it was revolutionary to me. I was trying to figure out, college student trying to figure out what in the world uh, I'm, I'm doing, where I'm going. Um, but to find out the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I was like, awesome. I'm going to get busy doing that. That's what I'm called to do. I'm going to go do that. And I knew in my head that I meant, that meant like I, I'm going to go live my life. But I'm going to do it so I can glorify God and enjoy him. Those are the two main things that I'm firing for. That's what I'm aiming at. No matter what I do, it's got to be aimed in that direction. And that was so freeing, energizing, enabling to know that my calling in life, whatever I might do, is not determined by me. It's determined by God. It's freeing because you know it's right. How often do people go, well, this is my purpose in life. They go, oh, you know, actually, that's not my purpose. It's this way. And they're like, oh, oh no, it's this way. And that's it, this way. Or people just go headlong into the wrong direction. They never waver. You know, it's like, you know, it, you know their, um, their, their, their lack of correctness is made up for by their confidence. That kind of thing. We don't have to define our dignity, our existence, our gender, our orientation, or our purpose. These things have been given to us by our Creator. Nor do we have to redeem ourselves from sin and condemnation. This has been given to us by our Redeemer. And when I think too highly of myself, I am reminded that I am dust and I am weak and needy. But when I think too, uh, too lowly of myself, I hear once again that I am made in the image of God, that I am being conformed to the image of Christ, that I am part of a holy people, a, a, a member of a royal priesthood, beloved, justified, adopted. I am called a child of God with an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade because being kept in heaven by Jesus for me. God is worthy of his glory. He is worthy of our lives dedicated to bringing him that glory, to glorifying him with everything we have, with everything we do, with all the different roles. If I am a husband or, or if I'm a wife, then it is to the glory of God. If I'm a parent, then it is to the glory of God. If I'm an employee, it is to the glory of God. If I own a house, it is to the glory of God in whatever way that can be. Because we were made to glorify God. And when we do, we shall find, as we'll discuss next week, that our lives are filled with eternal joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Christ we have that true meaning and purpose that redeems the fallen creation that is at work in us, calling us to greater things that we even think of ourselves because some of us think uh, too low and so we're, 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 we're aiming for the dirt and others are aiming at the complete wrong direction. 
but they don't realize that they're actually not aiming high enough. And so, Father, we pray that you would lift our eyes today, that you would lift, us, lift our eyes to the glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, to the glorious Father who has planned our redemption, to the Holy Spirit who indwells us and secures us for that glorious future. And Father, may we engage all that we have and all that we are for the sake of your name, that you may receive the praise that you are due, the praise and glory that you are worthy of, and that we would join in that, uh, that, that creation song singing together, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. And Christ adds, and were redeemed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand now in response.